Hey, everybody, this is God Saad for the Saad Truth. Uh, about three months ago, I had headed off to a uh, public library, a very beautiful public library close to my house to hang out with my daughter who had to study for her exams. And as I was looking around in a section where some of my books are housed, you know, we're all a bit egotistical. We go to check whether a particular library is carrying our books. Well, close to my book, The Parasitic Mind, this one, was this beauty right here, Free Speech, A History from Socrates to Social Media by Jacob Mshangama. And I started to read it there. About I got to, I think, page 22. And as I got home that day, I wrote to Jacob. And after a few months of going back and forth, I have him here. Welcome, Jacob. How are you doing? Thank you, God. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I've really looked forward to uh, to this discussion. And by the way, your uh, pronunciation of my last name is is the best I've heard. So, so <laughs> thanks. <laughs> That's a high compliment. Thank you. Uh, so let me just mention to people who you are, and then we'll get going. So you're a lawyer, originally from Denmark, a lawyer and a human rights activist. You are the CEO of the think tank Justicia. Is that is that how is that for the pronunciation? That's okay. Research yeah. professor professor at Vanderbilt University in Tennessee, senior fellow at FIRE, the Foundation of Individual Rights and Expression. Uh, Greg Lukianyov uh, is someone that I know well. I hung out with him at the Stanford University uh, conference that was held last year uh, on academic freedom. And he was one of my early guests on the show, maybe seven, eight years ago. And I recently met his co-author on the latest book. Uh, I was speaking at an event in, uh, in uh, New York and I got to meet her. So there are many intersections in our respective worlds anything else we want to add of course this book right here the the historical treaties on free speech which we'll get into quite extensively anything else that i might have missed in your bio before we get going jacob yeah yeah well i run the the future free speech project which is now uh, housed at vanderbilt university and uh, i actually just got back from philadelphia for uh, the annual board and advisory council meeting of FIRE. So was hanging out with and having dinner with Greg Lukianov and other good free speech people. So it's just, it's a small world. <laughs> it is a small world. Uh, so maybe we could start with the, I guess, most fundamental question. I'm often interested in what compels someone to be uniquely interested in a particular issue. You know, we could all spend our time pursuing many valuable, uh, you know, goals and objectives. Of course, one could argue few are as important as freedom of speech. So I understand that. But what uniquely titillated your fancy to say, okay, this is this is where I want to make my contribution? Yeah, that's a great question because I was born and raised in, in Denmark and Copenhagen, which is one of the most sort of secular liberal countries in the world where in my sort of youth, I took free speech for granted. I didn't think much about it. It was like breathing the air. And then, as you probably remember, in 2005, there was a Danish newspaper that published a number of cartoons depicting the Muslim prophet Muhammad. And suddenly, Denmark became the epicenter of what I would call uh, a global battle of values uh, over the relationship between free speech and religion. And what I saw was that a lot of the people who saw themselves as progressive, liberal, in, in favor of enlightenment values, and so on, suddenly started saying, well, uh, yes, we have free speech, but uh, free speech uh, should not be abused to punch down on minorities. Uh, and uh, 
we should show respect. Uh, you don't, there's not, free speech is not a duty to speak. All kinds of arguments that I found very, very unconvincing. Uh, and where, to me, this was about, you know, really an, an, an age-old battle that had been absolutely essential to open liberal democracy, sort of the ability to criticize and even mock religion, and that religious feelings and doctrines should not have special privileges in an open society, should be as open to criticism as communism or um, capitalism or any other uh, ideology. Um, and I think, you know, the events of that led to, you know, journalists, editors living, some of them became friends with round-the-clock security. There were terrorist attacks and there were, you know, discussions around the globe about this. People died uh, around the globe due to uh, uh, you know, the, the the controversies over cartoons that for a very long time had been seen as completely normal thing to do in, 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 in newspapers. So, so I think the cartoon affair is really what made me uh, become uh, obsessed and, and go down the rabbit hole of free speech. <laughs> I, I, I'm, well, since you mentioned the cartoon affair, I, I briefly referred to it. So in the parasitic mind, I talk about non-negotiable elements of a free society and of course freedom of speech is at the center of it and you might remember well you would certainly remember but maybe some of our viewers and listeners that uh, when the cartoon affair was going to be covered in a book i think it was yale university press the book is about the cartoons they refused to publish the cartoons in that book i mean it's insane yeah that's that's and and i think one of the sad things about this is that most mainstream media outlets would not publish the cartoons. One of the brave magazines that actually did show solidarity was Charlie Hebdo. And that is one of the main reasons why they became the victims of a hideous terrorist attack that claimed the lives of, of a dozen people. Uh, and, um, and, you know, it's, it's incredible to me that mainstream media outlets would not initially show the cartoons. I understand why some media outlets now in Denmark won't do it because, you know, it comes at a high price. Um, but then, you know, I prefer then media outlets to be honest saying, rather than talking about respect uh, and so on, you know, admit that you're doing it out of fear, that there is a threat from violent extremists and that's why we're not publishing them because otherwise, you know, we sugarcoat uh, the existence of of a, of a lethal threat to uh, free speech, uh, and and you know, I understand why it's sensitive to talk about. You know, uh, in 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 countries like Denmark, Muslims are a minority, and it's very easy for these discussions to become sort of polarized and sort of to paint all Muslims as a threat to free speech, which is which of course is not the truth. I mean, we, there, there's been a lot of Muslims who pay you know, who are much braver than, than and, and pay a, a high price for speaking out against um, uh, um, these kinds of, of, of laws. Um, but on, on, you know ultimately you have to face the truth of the of, of the threat and that threat is there. Um, and, and yeah so, so those are the things that, that that keep me up at night. And unfortunately we, we can maybe can get into this the Danish government now is introducing a renewed blasphemy ban because we have far-right people who 
run around burning the Qurans in the streets. And, you know, you might say, well, that's not a very sophisticated way to express your contempt for a religion. But so what? You know, you can burn the Danish constitution. Um, you can burn the Danish flag. Uh, why should there be special um, laws prohibiting the so-called improper treatment of religious objects? Well, because OIC uh, states like Iran and Saudi Arabia have put pressure on the Danish government because Al-Qaeda have made threats uh, against Danish society. And so you set a you know, terrible precedent when you say, yes, okay, we're going to cave to your demands because you're not going to get peace. They're going to come back next time someone does something that has not yet been criminalized and say, hey, please, uh, <laughs> please ban more. Yeah, well, that's, I think the, I mean, there's a long history, as you well know from your book of, you know, doing these kinds of things. But in 1990, I think the Cairo Declaration uh, is one that sort of tried to offer a framework for the fact that that's, in Arabic, you say hudud, meaning like uh, a line that you don't cross, right? There are, of course, we believe in freedom of speech, but now the second that you say, but... Uh, you no longer believe in free speech. And let me just mention a couple of things here. So in, in in my own work, you know, defending freedom of speech, I often draw the distinction between two ethical systems, deontological ethics and consequentialist ethics. Deontological ethics is an absolute statement. If I say it is never okay to lie, that would be a deontological statement. If I say uh, it is okay to lie to spare someone's feelings, well, then that would be a consequentialist statement. Now, for many, many things in life, we're all consequentialists, that's fine. But for certain foundational values on which the West is built, those by definition have to be deontological. There is no but. So that I am Jewish, I escaped the Middle East where you know some pretty nasty folks wanted to separate my head from the rest of my body. And yet I support the right of Holocaust deniers to spew their nonsense. There is nothing more that, it, that could be more offensive than the denial of a historical reality where an entire people were being exterminated. But if you are an absolutist defender of free speech, then you say, I have to put up with assholes. I have to put up with imbeciles. I, ha I have to put up with people who are anti-Semitic who spread falsehoods. Why is it that folks like you and I that come from many different, from very different backgrounds can see that, but many of our super smart progressive friends can't see that? Um, so I think, well, first of all, I think free speech is in many ways probably a counterintuitive uh, principle to human beings. Um, so there are so many uh, pressures to conform, for instance, uh, for, for, for human beings. Um, uh, maybe maybe uh, free speech was not a, a particularly um, useful uh, skill, you know, as we evolved. Maybe there were strong pressures to conform for survival. Um, that, 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 that's, that's, you know, I'm not an expert on that. You, you know more about that <laughs> than me, but then when you, when we've sort of evolved into living in, in open democracies, uh, free speech became sort of one of the basic, uh, foundations of that. But I also think that, uh, well, yeah, so, so there's always this, you know, it's a counterintuitive, uh, uh principle which is difficult to uphold and there's always this temptation for human beings to say yes free speech is important but 
these kinds of speech really threaten the underlying values of free speech, and therefore we have to make uh, exceptions. Um, and I think today, a lot of the you know people who come out of a, a liberal progressive tradition, I think there's a tendency to say, well, free speech is being weaponized against uh, minorities. It entrenches unequal power relations, which I try to show in the book is a deeply ahistorical reading of the history of free speech. In fact, there has been no, that, that I know of at least, marginalized, oppressed group um, uh, that has achieved equality or recognition or tolerance without exercising speech, you know, and often at very great cost. You now th think about think about the rights of women, for instance. Women, to, in order to ob obtain the right to vote and equality, women did not have guns. They did not have political offices. They did not have the power uh, needed. So if men had wanted to keep women down in, in, in Western, they could have done so ultimately by physical force and did so in many situations. So why was it that the struggle for women's rights resonated? Well, it was, you know, to a high degree because of arguments, right? Because of protests, you know, shining a light on the um, the um, absurdity of holding intelligent uh, women um, down and, and, and sort of the inability of coming up with a coherent defense of uh, system, systematic inequality between the sexes. And you could say the same for, you know, the gay rights movement. And of course, my favorite example is, is that of abolitionists in this country, in, in the United States, where someone like uh, Frederick Douglass might be the person who has used the word and speech to the greatest and most devastating effect uh, in order to, to fight for someone who saw accurately, in my opinion, that the values of freedom of speech and equality are mutually reinforcing, not mutually exclusive. And I think, unfortunately, a number of people today see um, free speech and equality as mutually exclusive, or at least see a tension between these two values. Very, very nice. Uh, so now I want to get, I want to really get into a deep dive into this beauty right here. And the reason why I was very excited, I mean, I, I, I must admit, I haven't got even close to finishing the book, but I certainly per quickly went through some of the, the headlines. So I love broad, synthetic approaches to a topic. So I, I've had, on, so my last book, my most recent book was on happiness. And so one of the people who endorsed my book is a historian who wrote a book on the history of happiness through many traditions, you know, the ancient Greeks and others that have studied happiness across time, across cultures. Uh, I love the book uh, by uh, Siddharth Mukherjee, uh, his first book, uh, The Emperor of All Maladies. He's an oncologist, a cancer uh, physician, where he was studying the history of cancer. So he was talking about, you know, it was a biography of how different cultures at different times have studied and have viewed cancer. And now here you come along, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, you know, you're one of the first guys, I mean, many people have written about freedom of speech, including yours truly, but you really, you know, you're trying to cover it across, you know, millennia in some cases, across cultures. So what are some, you know, how did you decide 
of all possible, the buffet of possible stories, cultures, and so on to cover those. I mean, some of them you can't avoid discussing, but yet, you know, I I listed, for example, someone that I thought might be in your book, which we can talk about later, which I don't think is in your book. So how did you come to that decision to decide which culture, which time period to cover? Yeah, so uh, the book is partly based on a podcast uh, that I did uh, previously called Clear and Present Danger, History of Free Speech, where it was my goal to cover the history of free speech as best as I could. And I sort of, um, I, to me, at least sort of where I see the origins of freedom of speech, at least in its sort of systematic um, application, um, is in the uh, Athenian democracy originating some 2,500 years ago. And the Athenians had two overlapping concepts, one of them called isagoria, meaning equality of speech. So that means every freeborn male citizen has a direct voice and vote in political affairs in the assembly in, in Athens. But perhaps even more interestingly, they also had um, a concept called parisia, meaning something like uninhibited speech, which was a civic commitment to the tolerance of social dissent across society. So even foreigners, someone like Aristotle could set up shop in Athens and um, and and uh, write things that were very critical uh, of uh, democracy. And uh, even though Socrates, uh, it didn't end up well for him. I was we gonna say, to remember- except for Socrates, yes. <laughs> but we have to remember that for decades, he was allowed to accost uh, his citizens in the Agora, in the, in the marketplace. And I think there were some very specific reasons for why ultimately the Athenians lost patience with him. One of them being, you know, I, and this is something that is relevant to our times that, you know, when we, when we sense that our values are under threat, we tend to become much more intolerant. And someone like Socrates had, had very close relations with oligarchs that had been involved with, some, with, with coups uh, that had overthrown democracy. And, and, and I think Socrates, for all his intellectual uh, merits, was not a big fan of democracy, not necessarily even of egalitarian free speech. Um, um, so that might have contributed to to why he he, he ended up the, the way he did. And I think he could have avoided the death penalty if he, you know if he had been willing to to compromise, which obviously he he, he did not. Um, but then you can you can compare the Athenian model with the Roman Republican model. So. Roman republicanism also sees free speech as important, but they don't have a specific term for it. So it's part of libertas, like the larger freedom uh, um, to Roman citizens, but it's a much more elitist, top-down form of free speech. So essentially, unlike the Athenian assemblies, only magistrates can speak, ordinary citizens cannot speak, they can only sort of ratify decisions. Um, and uh, it's, 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 it's generally seen as something to be exercised by the wealthy, well-educated elite and not the rabble. In fact, in, for many, sort of someone like Cicero, if you ask him, he, he admired Greek culture, but he saw Athenian democracy as the root of, uh, of, of, of the demise of, of, of Greek culture. Why would you let the unwashed mob, the uneducated citizen, allow allow them to have a decision and a voice in public affairs when clearly uh, that, that would lead to disaster. Now, it didn't turn, turn out very well for, for Cicero and his generation, ultimately. 
uh, but that's an, but that's another story. But but those two conceptions, I think, are perennially in conflict throughout the history of free speech because every time the public sphere is expanded to previously marginalized groups, there is what I call elite panic. So the so the established um, um, gatekeepers of uh, acceptable opinion will tend to fret and panic about the consequences of letting the, the those who had been previously silenced have a voice in, in public affairs. So you see that with the invention of the printing press, uh, you see that with new technological uh, inventions, and you see it very much today in our, our day of social media and, and, and now AI uh, coming, coming along. But, but as you mentioned, you know, I, I try to not make this into an exclusively Western um, uh, history. So I think there are uh, interestingly very important developments in the Islamic world. So in the, in the early part of, 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 the, of the Middle Ages, you know, the Islamic world, the, the Abbasid Caliphate and surrounding areas, are really the intellectual uh, intellectual powerhouse of, of, of the world. That's where you have a translation movement that translates the vast majority of Greek works on, on science and, and philosophy. You have very interesting debates and you have the most radical free thinkers of the time. Someone like Al-Razi, right. uh, a physician and, 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 and uh, sort of a... And, uh, polymath in many ways, but who writes strikingly about sort of, you know, the, the need to be able to criticize prophecy and holy books who have open discussions rather than, than narrow mindedness. Uh, so you have, you know, what what I think you can justifiably call free thinkers, at least with a with a with a 21st century uh, gaze um, in the Islamic world. And of course, the Islamic world contributes to um, um, to 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 sort of the um, establishment of, of um, or the rediscovery of, of classical works in the West uh, that then takes it to another level with with universities and so on. So in that sense, the the, the so called dark ages are much less dark than than we come to think of. Even though, of course, you don't have a concept of as such as free speech. Even though you have later on the Inquisition and so on. I'm glad you mentioned uh, the 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 Islamic element because the the person that I hinted at earlier that I said, oh, I don't think I saw him in your book, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, is a, is actually in a, I mean, at least I, I think he was an atheist, although he was, I mean, of Islamic origin. Are you familiar with the Al Ma'ari? No, I don't think he's he's in there. We have um. I have an, uh, there's another more extreme, more even more extreme than 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 Rossi, but it's very difficult to establish. Uh, you know, scholars I think differ on the degree of authenticity among uh, uh, um, because some of some of the most radical free thinkers we own their works only survive in the writings of others, and so there's a discussion. You know, have they been made out to be more extreme by their enemies uh, or oh, not? I see. Well, I can't, yeah, I but, can't, but, I can't speak to that. But anyways, you might want to check this guy. I mean, the way it's written is M A apostrophe for I N A R I. He was a blind uh, thinker. Uh, I think I, I can't remember if he was congenitally blind or 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 he became blind a bit later in life. But in the little that I've read of this guy, 
he was so outrageously caustic against all sort of religious thinking and the religious prophets. And I was thinking to myself, as I was reading about him, again, I can't authenticate if they were his writings or not. I couldn't believe that a thousand years ago in the context of the Middle East, someone could be that outspoken. So anyways, as a maybe as something for fun, you might want to check him out, Al-Ma'ari. Uh, okay, so yeah. are there any things... So, you know, Steven Pinker, and I know that he's endorsed, uh, I think, your book. Uh, Steven Pinker, for example, that wrote a book several years ago looking at, you know, the kind of the, the decline of violence, you know, over the over the centuries. And so that we, sh- you know, we should we should feel grateful that we live in the contemporary period. Things have gotten better. We're less cruel to women. We're less cruel to minorities. We're, we're less cruel to, to, to animals. Uh, okay. Is there an... A, a, an oscillation or a cycle or a longitudinal arc as relating to free speech across time periods or across cultures? And if so, what can explain these, you know, waxing and waning of how we respond to free speech? Yeah, that's a very good question. We definitely see ebbs and flows. I would say free speech in its sort of modern contemporary understanding as an individual right functioning uh, in a in a democracy is a pretty novel thing, even though it obviously has roots in the Athenian democracy. It's, 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 it's interesting that the Athenian democracy is really not seen as a model until maybe the, the very late 18th century. And you have to in, get into the, the 19th century where sort of British radicals who fight for um, the right of the lower to British democracy uh, sort of um, revive Athenian thought, but otherwise it's more the, ro- the people are more comfortable with with sort of more Roman uh, precedents than, than than Athenian ones. But I would say that it, it's it's definitely the case that you know take the Enlightenment. We, we all talk, we all you know very often if you talk about free speech, people will talk about the Enlightenment. Well. Uh, and of course, the Enlightenment is where free speech really makes a breakthrough. It's where you know you have the the, the first uh, codification of uh, free speech into declarations of rights uh, that at least purport to be uh, universal. But it's also true that after the French Revolution, free speech is rolled back. You know, across especially in Europe, like you you free speech is suddenly seen as extremely dangerous uh, because it it spreads these uh, insane French ideas that uh, seek to upend all authority and lead to chaos, war, and bloodshed. And therefore, you have to reimpose, um, um, you know, um, royal and priestly uh, control of the public sphere and never again allow these radical philosophers and others to uh, to to attack the established order, and so in Europe, in in, in continental Europe at least, you ha- you really have to get into, with 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 few exceptions like Norway, you have to get into the second half of the nineteenth century before democracy really um, uh, makes uh, a breakthrough and, and free speech becomes. Um, a, a value that is one, and then of course in many many places it's rolled back now and then again. You know, you have totalitarians and spreading out in uh, in, uh, in in Germany, uh, in, in Italy, you know, 
fascism uh, in, in uh, or at least deeply authoritarian rule in Spain, and of course communism is a huge, huge, huge and long um, stumbling block for free speech. Um, so, so it's certainly a principle that is never truly won or lost. I think, uh, and I think one of the problems for many living in established democracies today is that we tend to take it for granted that yeah. it's inconceivable to us that, you know, we, we wouldn't, that we would be put in gulags for, for speaking out or that the particular views that we hold should one day be criminalized or punished. Uh, and therefore, when we see people exercise free speech in a way that we think is detrimental to values that we hold dear, we don't think it's, dangerous to democracy as such to take a little bit a little slice of, of free speech um, we don't see um, um, that as, as dangerous as such we might even see that free speech is is dangerous to democracy whereas I think it's it's the other way around I, I don't I really think that free speech is the most important human right you know and that is not to say you know that you, you could you somewhat you could say oh so you think it's more uh, important for Nazis to be allowed to march through Skokie than, uh, than you know, stopping torture. Um, and on the surface, that's a clever argument. But then, you know, in which societies are you more likely to prevent torture, those with or without free speech? You know, if you want to campaign against torture, if you want to document torture, how do you do that without free speech? And, you know, in the countries where people are tortured, why are they being tortured? Well, they're being tortured because they say things that the rulers don't like. If you had free speech, most of those who are being tortured would not be tortured in the first place because uh, they would only be exercising uh, their right. Um, so, so, and, you know, and, and, and really, you know, if, you, if your thing is LGBT rights, Again, you're dependent on free speech, right? You know, if you want to shine a light on discrimination of LGBT people around the world, how do you mobilize? How do you ensure that, you know, you get supporters? How do you uh, get the media to cover uh, your protest? Uh, how do you uh, organize a pride parade? Uh, you do so by exercising your free speech and freedom of assembly. Or, and you know, a very good example, Go, go to Turkey, you know, they've been trying to hold pride parades in, in Istanbul for a long time. And what happens? The police shows up and they ban it. Um, so, so that, and, and, and so that's the difference between societies where you have and don't have uh, free speech. There's, there's an echo in the background. Is there some kind of noise happening in your house or something? Yeah. I'll, um, let me, um, can we pause it? I'll try to find somewhere a bit more quiet. Okay, sounds good. Okay, so I guess uh, my next question is, what do you think about the current? So if you know you go see your physician once a year, there's a bunch of metrics that they could look at. You know, how's your blood sugar? How's your cholesterol? Have you gained or lost weight? Uh, you know, what's your blood pressure like? So if I were going to you as a physician of the soul of our societies or the physician of freedom of speech. I mean, my view would be, I, perhaps you'll agree, and I, of course there are surveys, some of which 
fire reports on that suggest that we're probably in the worst possible state of the certainly the past 40, 50 years in terms of the general ethos of free speech in the West. Do you agree with that? I mean, sh- should we be pessimistic that this is the worst spell, certainly in the in the last 30, 40, 50 years that we've had regarding free speech? So I think there are two ways to look at it. So one is sort of taking the long view. And in that sense, you can be very positive, right? Because, you know, compared to 100 years ago, certainly we have more free speech and technology a lot. You know, you and I can sit and have an uncensored conversation and you can put that out to uh, however many thousands of people follow you uh, in ways uh, that, that circumvent traditional gatekeepers. So, so from that perspective, things are good. Also, the First Amendment provides protections that are stronger than ever. You know, free speech is an individual human right. But on the other hand, I think we are actually living through what I call a free speech recession. So not only have we seen for more than a decade that free speech restrictions have been adopted, not only in authoritarian states, but also in liberal democracies where laws against hate speech, against controlling social media, disinformation have become prevalent. But ultimately, we also see an erosion. You call it the ethos of free speech. I I like to call it the culture of free speech. And ultimately, I think the culture of free speech is the most important um, element for free speech to thrive. Because you can have the best legal protections in the world, but if, if you don't have a critical mass of people who believe in free speech, those um, standards are likely to be interpreted in, in, in intolerant ways. Um, so, um, and I think you're right in, in saying that there are, I still think that, you know, free speech is still something that most people find is important. But I also think that they are willing to compromise on a lot of important issues where where there was a stronger civil libertarian impulse um, a decade or, uh, or or two decades ago. I think in many ways, the boomer generation were sort of, that's, that's the high watermark of civil libertarianism when it comes to, to uh, free speech, whereas younger generations tend to be maybe uh, less convinced about the blessings of a very robust principle free speech protection. Do you think that there are ways by which we can inculcate all of the necessary values that would be supportive of free speech to young children? I mean, certainly the activists and the, you know, the the ideologues are well aware that the best place to get at people is to get them when they're very young, right? And so, you know, as someone who studies consumer psychology, I'll teach my students that, look, you know, uh, we we say that it's illegal to target a child to sell them chewing gum because they don't have yet the cognitive and emotional system to counter argue against advertisements for chewing gum. And yet we by from that's from one side of the mouth and from the other side of the mouth, we inculcate them with our religious beliefs or with the woke ideology and so on. So is there a way for us to build, if you'd like, a mental hygiene that is supportive of freedom of speech in our children? I think so. You know, um, I see, for instance, in, in American universities and colleges, an increasing number of uh, institutions 
have are starting sort of free speech initiatives. This includes Vanderbilt, where I'm at. So the reason why we've opened up on campus is because Vanderbilt University is has seen free speech as an, uh, a crucial value, and and you see this at a number of other universities. So I think there's a recognition among research institutions, colleges, that the pendulum has swung too far in an illiberal uh, um, direction and that uh, the mission and function of a university risks being um, compromised and eroded if you allow uh, intolerance to reign on, on campus. Um, and I'm also, you know, whenever I speak to students and so on, I think that if you make a robust case for free speech, I think you can, you know, it's not, I don't view them as uh, these hopeless cases of social justice snowflakes, you know, they are intelligent people, they have some concerns that, you know, that, that maybe their, their, their default position is that equality and tolerance are more important um, than free speech, and they don't see the link between free speech and and uh, and the thriving of minorities but i think you can make that case to them and that will um it, it won't convince everyone but i think i think it can be made um and also i think it, it, um, it requires that institutions and others show courage because nothing is as corrosive to a principle uh as sort of Cowardice and unwillingness to stand up for it. If professors and universities constantly speak of free speech as this, um, as white supremacy or you know something that is harmful or hurtful, then people are going to view it as that. But if people stand up for it uh, and say, you know what, we're not going to back down. Um, we will allow. Um, a speaker that you might find controversial, and you have every right to criticize that speaker. You can you can also peacefully protest that speaker. That is absolutely your right. But we will not allow you to uh, disrupt uh, uh, the meeting. We will not allow you to decide whether a student group can uh, invite someone whose viewpoints you find uh, abhorrent. But just before I. Uh started my chat with you, Jacob, I had a quick chat, only a 20 minute one, because I just wanted to discuss his, the imminent case that just happened. I had uh, Calvin Robinson on. I don't know if you know, do you, are you familiar? Do you know who that is? No. Calvin Robinson is a, is a deacon in the free church of England, but uh, he works for uh, GB news, great Britain news. And he was fired uh, he, he, as a political commentator. He was as a political commentator. So Lawrence Fox, who was a an actor uh, in Britain, I'm not sure if he's still acting much, who, who's very much of kind of an irreverent guy who doesn't care about the orthodoxy. He speaks his mind, so which is quite rare for an actor, uh, went on a show where he was very angry at, at a feminist who was kind of belittling the plight of male suicide. And, uh, you know, because from her perspective, it's only women who are victims. And so the minute that you say that men might be victims too, well, that's that's not good. And, you know, who cares about men anyways? And so, and in her uh, engagement in the public eye, she often says, well, sorry, buddy, I'm not going to shag you, which is the British term for I'm not going to sleep with you. So he used the exact same terms. He went on a show where he said, well, 
who would want to shag this woman? So he was just using the language that she's become famous for using because he was basically intimating the fact that he finds her quite morally repugnant. And so there was huge hysteria all over Britain. He was fired. His friend Calvin Robinson, who had nothing to do with the story, but simply defended his right to say that, even though it might have been worded in a crass way, even though you shouldn't be talking about whether you want to shag someone or not on a, on, on television and so on. Uh, he got fired by proxy. And so I think freedom of speech to our earlier point, you know, you called it a culture of freedom of speech. I call it ethos of freedom of speech. It's not just about the intrusion of governments, right? I hate when, and I actually, I have a section in, in, in the parasitic mind where I say, you know, stop saying, yeah, but Twitter is, is a, is a company. It's not, it's not the government. Freedom of speech is an entire mechanism. It's an ecosystem, right? It's, am I allowed to walk into class and say whatever I want without feeling that I need to self-censor? That's part of freedom of speech. So in that sense, it's an ethos. Is there a way to convince people? Because that's probably the number one thing that I get whenever I comment on something. Someone will come in a smug manner and say, but what are you complaining about? That's not the government stopping you. How do we get people to understand that freedom of speech is more than simply government agents knocking at my door in, in the middle of the night? Yeah, I, I think you're you're absolutely right in that. Though uh, I, I also the, the lawyer in me has to say that it 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 often becomes sort of um, a bit more difficult to establish bright lines when it's when when it's when it's in the you know private or cultural institutions and not the government uh, because. Um, so I try to I try to sort of when we talk about cancel culture, I try to sort of distinguish between you know if if someone finds our conversation today offensive and they go on Twitter or X or whatever it's called and they criticize us vehemently, call us all kinds of names, that's fine. You know I might not like it, but that's part of their free speech. You know I can't turn around and say oh. You're trying to, uh, you, you, you know, what you're saying is is trying to to, to silencing me. I, I participate in the public debate, so do you. That comes with with harms and and, and and cost, and not everyone is going to agree with you, right? But if so, someone instead says, "Hey, um, you know, we got that this, you know, went to your uh, to to." to uh, you know, your boss and said, you know, you should no longer be allowed to to teach. Uh, then you're undermining the culture of free speech. Yeah. So, so so if you are, there's a huge difference between criticizing someone even vehemently and uh, using satire or mockery. That's not always nice to be on the receiving end of, but it's it's an important element of, of, of social critique. And on the other hand, trying to have someone punished through, through sanctions or being fired because that's not really engaging in free speech. That is, that is, that, that is not engaging with the argument. That is a, a demanding that, that that person suffers uh, consequences. So that's how I try to operationalize um, cancel culture. It's not always possible to do so in, with as bright lines as when you know this, the, the government comes knocking on your door. But I think it's a helpful way to uh, to think about it um, because you're absolutely right, you know, and, and that's 
that's what the Athenians understood that, you know, if you, uh, if you read Pericles' funeral oration as recounted by Thucydides, he talks about, you know, the pride in the Athenian model of saying, you know, we resolve our differences, differences through, uh, through, through dialogue and debate, and we don't necessarily look down on someone just because they live their lives in a, in a different manner uh, from us. So that's a, a civic commitment to tolerance of social uh, dissent. Now it had its limits in, in, in Athens, as as we discussed, but it's a very it's a very useful ideal. But but your your point about uh, what I call it occupational harassment, where someone tries to get you fired because you said something, it's actually happened to me on many occasions. I probably say things that upset people by Monday morning that than most people will say in their lives. I don't do it because I'm trying to be mean or whatever. It's because I'm a, I'm committed to the principles of free speech. I don't go out of my way to hurt someone's feelings, but truth is more important than anything in my view. And so, yes, uh, if you ask me, do I look fat in those jeans as a polite person, I may say, no, no, you look wonderful, Jacob. I've never seen you look so good because I'm also a kind person. But for big deontological things, I don't care about your feelings. I'll I'll take I'll tell it the way. As a matter of fact, I would be inauthentic and a fraud as a professor if I modulate the truth so that I hurt group so that I don't hurt group A or group B. But in in my public engagement, I've often said something that you know upset someone, so they start writing to my university. But never has it happened in a more massive manner, Jacob. And this may or may not surprise you. Uh, I'm not sure if you were familiar with it. But uh, a few months ago, when my latest book came out, the day that my book came out, I was I appeared on Joe Rogan's show to to chat, and in our conversation, I jokingly, you know, I was making fun of several accents. I began by joking about the Portuguese accent because my family and I had just returned from Portugal, and I was saying that it's not a terribly of the Romance languages, it's not a very attractive sound. You know, I speak fluent French also. Italian is beautiful. Portuguese is not. That was an aesthetic judgment that I was making. And then I continued, well, Hebrew, which is the language that I speak, I said is violently ugly. Well, okay, that, that's not what got me in trouble. It's the next one that got me in trouble. And then I said, but when it comes to the French-Canadian accent, remember, I live in Montreal, Quebec. So the French-Canadian accent, well, that's just an affront to human dignity. And now I said that in a completely joking manner. As a matter of fact, it's become a, a gadism. So, you know, the Beatles are an affront to human dignity. Anybody who doesn't love Lionel Messi is an affront to human dignity. If my wife burns the meal, well, that's an affront to human decency. So you can just go and you'll see me saying that about a million banal things. Well, I must have had hundreds of people write to my university to get a 30-year professor, a chaired professor, fired because he made a joke about an accent. I think that that reflex comes about because, regrettably, our society is deathly diseased when it comes to freedom of speech. Otherwise, you wouldn't have that instinct to get a professor fired because he joked. I mean, healthy people can say, oh, you don't like my accent? Who cares? But the fact that you can weaponize your frustration at me by trying to get me fired, I wonder if you as a lawyer can ever conceive of a time where trying to get someone fired becomes a criminal offense. Could that be or that's impossible? No, I well, I would be very wary of that too, uh, of, of um, 
of, of trying to, to I mean, obviously that could be sort of an abuse of procedure, um, but, but I would be wary of that. Um, and, and that's also, you know, you see people on the, on, on the right in, in this country. So I, I live in Tennessee where, for instance, um, people, um, the legislature here has uh, trying to crack down on wokeism and drag and sort of, and, and then the, 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 the defense is, well, we're just trying to, this is a countermeasure against um, progressive liberal overreach, but you know, free speech is a principle. So you're not justified in limiting the free speech of others just because someone else wants to, you know, if, if that was a valid argument, then you could say, you know, the Bolsheviks were, were justified in, in censoring everyone because they had been suppressed during the, the Tsarist times. You know, Stalin was in, sent to Siberia seven times. So therefore it was okay for him to send people to the gulags. Um, so, so, but, but I, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm definitely, uh, I'm, I'm not surprised, uh, that, you know, it, my, my knowledge of, of, um, of Quebec is, is limited, but even at the legal level, like, it seems like, uh, French Canadians are very, very sensitive about, uh, <laughs> linguistic issues. <laughs> I, by the way, uh, Jacob, and I'm not, I'm not being facetious now, I'm being literal. I received more hate for that incredibly banal passing joke than when I've criticized Islam. Now, that's pretty impressive. I mean, I mean, literally, that's true. I mean, I've received death threats because of Islam, but not this kind of three-week tsunami of concerted hate. And, you know, it made it very difficult because at the time we were, in, uh, you know, we then we, we left to Southern California for several weeks. I was kind of doing my media tour. And so luckily I was in California when it was really blowing over. And then when we returned to Quebec, I told my wife, I said, you know, it's not so much that I'm afraid that someone in Quebec is going to come up to kill me, but how about the daily mundane interactions? If the barista recognizes me and he's one of the ones who was offended, what stops him now from spitting in my coffee? What about the sous chef? So, you know, you're mobilizing. I don't know how many it was, 5,000, 50,000, 500,000. You've, you're, and by the way, the justice minister of Quebec weighed in not in support of me, against me. So that's not exactly what you would think someone who lives in a free society. I mean, he could say, you know, I found it annoying and insulting that he would, he would, uh, you know, make fun of our accent. But the reality is he's perfectly allowed to do that on the, on the, what he said was, it is unbecoming. It is shameful that a professor would engage in such jokes. And so that's off limits. So we've got a lot more to work to do, don't we, Jacob? But but that exactly shows the you know how many people are willing to pay the social consequences of that. If you know you say something, and people that you depend on for your livelihood, your neighbors, your friends, your colleagues, uh, the people in the supermarket are going to look at you. That very few people are willing to pay that price, exactly. and that speaks to sort of the you know. The, the why conformity, social conformity can be a much more powerful sensor than often than, than, than legal restrictions. Exactly right. Uh, two more questions and then uh, we can wrap it up. Let me just put back this. Please go out and get this book. 
it, what are some things? It could be one or more things that while researching this incredibly rich book, right? Again, it's across cultures, across time periods, a treaties of free speech, some things that really shocked you and surprised you that you said, wow, did I not know this? What are some of the ones that strike you the most? Well, one of the things what we talked about earlier, like how many pre-enlightenment uh, uh, developments that were crucial to free speech and also that it was not just limited to the West was something that I was not really um, aware of to the extent that I, that I sort of um, talk about in the book. Another thing is what I call Milton's curse. So John Milton is famous for writing his Arabagitica, uh, which is a, an attack on the reinstitution of pre-publication censorship in England. Um, and it's beautiful, it's written in beautiful prose. It has lots of arguments that are relevant today. But when you read it more carefully, you find out that John Milton is in favor of uh, free speech, but not for Catholic, not for <laughs> radical pro Protestant sects, only mainline Protestant sects. And the ultimate irony is that John Milton ends up working as a censor under Cromwell and his military dictatorship. And unfortunately, you see that again and again, that many of the most prominent proponents of free speech end up arguing for restrictions on free speech. Take Voltaire, you know, um, he never himself said that, you know, I disagree with what you say, but I'll, I'll, I'll die for your right to, to say it. And that was his biographer. But he is someone who is very often seen as a as a as the champion of free speech. And you know, for his time, he was very progressive on free speech. But Voltaire was someone who also was, you know, he, he thought that free speech was for the well-educated learned elite. Uh, it was certainly not an egalitarian conception of free speech or a democratic uh, conception of free speech uh, at all. And he sort of thought of nine-tenths of, of humanity as, as uh, monkeys who, <laughs> who, who were sort of beyond reach. Um, and you see it with, you know, some of the founding fathers, um, you know, seven years after the ratification of the First Amendment in the United States, John Adams, as president, signs the Sedition Act, which criminalizes criticism of the president uh, and, and government and, and, uh, and both houses of Congress. And people are being put in jail in the U.S. for for um, for, for criticizing John Adams. Um, so this um, this tendency, this Milton's curse, is a recurring phenomenon, uh, even when it comes to sort of big and celebrated um, champions of free speech. Very interesting. Okay, last question. Uh, yes, you just came off the journey of writing this beauty. What are some other projects that are causing you to wake up in the morning with great excitement at the looming stuff that you have to do that day. If you'd like to share any with us, please take it away now. Yeah, uh, apart from playing civilization with my son uh, and trying to gain world dominance, uh, <laughs> I know, I, uh, uh, I think generative AI is a huge thing and it's very difficult to wrap my head around how free speech, existing uh, free speech ideas can use that we having on the 12th and 13th of October at Vanderbilt University, a, a big conference on AI and free speech with some, some great speakers. So I think that's the next frontier and uh, it will have huge consequences both for the legal and practical exercise of free speech. I'm assuming that it's on October 12th and 13th because that's yeah. an indirect way 
to be celebrating my birthday on October 13th, correct? Can you? Of course, and, you know, we even have free speech week uh, and, and Mandeville, and we made sure we looked in the calendar and we saw it, that's when God has his birthday. We want to, you know, celebrate him and, and honor him by ensuring that free speech week is, is the same I, week as his birthday. I am humbled by that uh, act of respect. Uh, Jacob, what a delight to talk to you. Stay on the line so we could say goodbye. And again, for anybody who's listening, please be charitable and don't start writing nasty comments about the audio quality. Sometimes these things happen. It was still hopefully a, a worthy conversation. It's such a pleasure to meet you, Jacob. I hope I get the chance to meet you in person and uh, keep up with the great work. Thank you so much. Thank you.